the thing that I love most about Mark has very little to do with his personality because his personality, most of the people that I know that are what I would call electric chihuahuas, and that is that once they wake up in the morning, they're going until they go to sleep. That's Mark. That's his personality. Most people that I know that are like that are very dishonest people. They live with a facade. They live with a screen. They live with a shield. They live with a Heisman pose most of their life, and the way they use their personality is to keep you away. And they, and they do it with a lot of humor and a lot of laughter and a lot of passion. Really passionate people are usually some of the most dishonest people you need to ever met. Hitler, great example. And then go down through history and look at some of the most passionate people that have ever done anything in the course of history. And usually they're very dishonest people, and they use their passion to manipulate and twist your mind and twist who you are. Some of the best men you've ever dated, girls, were very passionate guys who lied through their teeth to you, didn't they? About who they were and how much they loved you. And you're still, thank you for telling me about that and reminding me of that, John. Appreciate it. I don't like Mark or love Mark because of his passion. Matter of fact, what I love most about him most is that he is the most honest man I've ever get to be around. And that's in spite of his personality. And in knowing him, as long as I have, he's had to fight through that. I know that because passion tends to allow you to make other things the focus besides what God's doing in your own life. And so one of the things I want to I encourage us and challenge us to tonight is this, that whether you have a very... Um, golden retriever personality. You know, when you, people come in the room, they're not quite sure you're there, um, but people love you. Um, or you have the electric chihuahua personality or somewhere in between that you would realize this, that all of us, no matter who we are, do everything we can to hide ourselves from God and everybody else. I have this issue going on in my life all the time, and it's this. I struggle between finding contentment in what, in things that matter to me. In other words, for example, I'm a pastor of a church and there's people that come to this place, right? And my passion and my heart is that people would come to follow Christ in a way that glorifies God, but most in the middle of that changes their life. They begin to look like Christ. And so constantly evaluating how that's working and how that's going. And there's this tension with me all the time of going, gosh, why doesn't this guy get it? Or why don't more people get it? And there's always this tension, okay? When we started, 50 people got it. And you're kind of excited about that. And then months, years later, 200 people got it. And you get excited about that. Then 400 people get it. And then after a while, you start telling yourself, will there ever be a number that you get to where it's enough? Will you ever get to a place when 450 people get it and you think, man, this is it. This is great. Or will it have to be 4,000? And when you get to 4,000, will it have to be 8,000? When you get to 8,000, that's a church thing you may not relate to. This is another thing. I'm married. have a relationship with this lady right here named Fran. We've been married for 20 years. We've known each other for 25 years, Okay. The other night we had a conversation. You know what the whole conversation was about? Our marriage wasn't good enough. Now, we have a wonderful marriage. I would stack it up with anybody in this room. But in our contentment talking to each other, there was this discontentment with our marriage. We have two boys. One, are, one is uh, 13, the other one's 10. Love those two guys. They are, I remember when they looked like that. Um, they didn't have that color hair, but I remember when they looked like that. I remember when they, they came out of the woman, they were just, they didn't look human. They looked like little aliens, and they came out, and they were all just gross looking, and you, only reason you loved them is because they were yours, you know? And I remember that. And I remember now that since they've grown up, I remember looking at them, and I'm, I'm completely in love with those two boys, but I'm never satisfied with where they are. Tonight, one of them was complaining about the food we were making, and part of me just thought, I'll take you to Guatemala next year, buddy, and you'll eat, you'll eat things you don't even know what they call it. And you'll be thankful. You know, that was going on in the back of my head, that the dad thing that goes on, just be thankful. My kids eat anything. We can shove anything in front of our kids anywhere, and they're just great eaters. But tonight I wasn't satisfied with the fact that he didn't like I put tomatoes in the middle of his chicken salad or whatever we were making that they fixed for us, by the way. I have 13-year-olds that fix food. That was really cool. I was a little scared when I got home. The grill was on, and the 13 was out there flipping chicken. I was thinking, oh, God, this could end bad. Um, but he did it. It worked out well. But do you live like that? Is there something that matters to you that you're never satisfied? Some of you are students, and, and you can make straight A's and not be satisfied. Some of you can, are students, and you make C's, straight C's, and, you know, you're pretty satisfied because you don't care about that. But then you have other things you do care about, you know? And, and no matter how well you do in that, are you ever satisfied? Some of you have jobs that, that, I'll ask you this, have you ever been satisfied a day in that job? And you may say, yeah, there's a day. Okay, let me ask you this, has there been a week? One solid week where you were satisfied. I'll go a little farther. Has there been a month? Some of you are in relationships right now. Have you ever been satisfied in your relationship for longer than like two or three days at a time? 
Have you ever just sat back and thought, this is, you know, Miller Lite commercial? Psh, this is as good as it gets. It may not be Miller Lite. I think it's old Milwaukee. Not that I would know, but I think it's old Milwaukee. Because we live in this cycle as humans like this, where, where, we, where we constantly want or need something more, and we struggle for it, and we say things like this, if I could just date her, then psh, I would surmise that life couldn't get any better than this. If I could just have this job, if I could just be in that band, if I could just have those, if I could just have a friend, if I could just make, if I could just graduate, and we're always looking to the next thing to say this, if I get here, then my needs will be met, and we constantly live in this cycle, and when we get there, we say, this is as good as it gets, and we live there for about an hour or about a day, and then we walk back into the next thing of going, if I could just have that. If that could just happen for me, if I could just. Today we're going to read from Psalm 23. It's a passage that you probably, even if you've never been in church, have heard somewhere at a funeral, uh, maybe at a wedding, uh, maybe just because somebody on the radio, or maybe you went to a U2 concert and you heard Bono talking about it. I don't know. Psalm 23 is pretty popular. We're going to read this together. If, if you don't have a Bible in the ones that are in the front of you, it's on page 392 if you want to open it up and, and flip there. One of the things I want to encourage you to do, one of the things that I talk a lot about is, as I get to talk um, and open the Word up for people is this. Every time we open the Word, it's, it's something like looking at a picture. Um, I, we don't get to look at photographs much anymore that you handle. You know, when you look at pictures, where do you look at them most of the time? Computer or your phone, right? I mean, when's the last time you actually held a photograph? It's been a while for most of you, right? And so you get photographs like on your Facebook or your Twitter or, you, you know, your phone, and you, and you look at them. And when you get a photograph, a picture of a bunch of people in it, right, there's 10 of you, or even if there's two of you, who do you look for first? Yourself. Liars, those of you who didn't say that. You look for yourself. You immediately look for yourself. And if there's 32 pictures in that little, you know, collage of pictures that got sent to you, and seven of them have your picture in it, you will find those seven pictures, and what will you do? Especially if you have, you know where the delete button is on your computer or your phone. You will look through those pictures, and you will evaluate the worth of those pictures based on what? How you look, don't you? And, if you, and you know, obviously, if you're doing this, you're going to delete. But you can, you can be just your best pose. And you may not like the way your eye went, or the fact that you kind of look like, you know, Right, they flashed it, and you're like, eh, you know, and so you do what? You hit the little delete button, the trash can lid opens, and your picture goes, poof, it's gone. And you evaluate the worth of that picture based on what you look like. And everybody else in that picture, it doesn't matter whether there's 90 people in that picture or two, everybody else gets trashed because of the way you look. And you'll save the pictures that you think you look well in because of how your image appears on that picture to you. And I will submit this to you, that when we look at God's Word, most of the time when we read God's Word, what we look for first is us. How does this relate to me? What is this saying to me? Who am I in here? What is God trying to give me? Is there a promise in here? Is there something? I can't figure this out. What is God saying to me? And we will say things like that all through life. Some of you are in the middle of a crisis right now, and the very first thing that comes out of your mouth is, what is God trying to teach me? And I want to I encourage you to do something tonight. And maybe you'll do this the next time you see a picture. Instead of looking for you in Psalm 23, 1 tonight first, Look for God. See who he is. See what he says about himself. See who his image is and watch this. When he lays his image over yours, you look a whole lot better. Matter of fact, you probably don't see yourself very much. And it's a totally different image when you look and see who God is first and then you find in the scripture who he calls us to be because here's the thing that most of you do know if you've read the word at all. God calls you to be like him. So when you find who he is, that's who you're going to find who you are. And then you find how you don't match up to that as you look at sin and everything else. But find him first. We're going to do that tonight. Then find yourself. And I just want to encourage you as you read the word tomorrow or the next day or next week, find God first, then find yourself. Let's read this together. Psalm 23. We're going to read the first three verses. Um, I'll just read these to you out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Read this first verse with me again. Will you read it with me? The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. Read it out loud with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One more time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Father, I pray tonight that you would help us embrace the truth because you are a shepherd. We don't want. And Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus tonight. Not as an incantation to, to put something into play, but because you went to the place that allows us to access right and acceptable standing before you. The place that allows us to pray and talk to you. The place that allows you to hear us and move in us because of all those things that Jesus has done and who he is. God, we pray in his name tonight. Amen. We're going to look at this first verse, and we'll, we'll get to a couple of, of few verses as we go along, but the very first verses we're going to anchor in tonight. The word, the first word there, the Lord. The word Lord is used many times in the Old Testament. This word Lord here is the word Yahweh. It's also the, the word that gets translated Jehovah. It's the same thing. Jehovah is the German translation of that word Yahweh, the, or the English translation of the word. Same word. All through the Old Testament, there's many different words for Lord. This is the word that if you go to a synagogue today in the Ladue, and you're hearing the scripture read from Psalm 23, 1, this word won't get pronounced. Because the Jews believe that the word Yahweh is so holy that they won't say it out loud in scripture as they're reading in the synagogue. And the word Yahweh is the first word that God put on himself as a name. Whenever Moses, if you remember this story, when Moses looked and saw God in the burning bush, and he saw the burning bush and he walked over and he began to talk to God and have a conversation with him, and God told Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt to bring my people out. And then Moses Frightened as he was, said, well, okay, great, if I do go, and they start asking me, well, who's sending me? Who do I say you are? And then he tells them this name, tell them I am sent you. And I am is, is a Hebrew word that's translated very close to Yahweh in their, in their language as a verb, and it just means this, the one who was and is and is to come. And it was the word that God put on himself, the name that he put on himself every time he started entering into a covenant with his people. It was his covenant name. It's a name for the majesty and the glory of God, so holy and so mighty that every time his name is mentioned in the scripture and used in a way where God shows up in the midst of his people, people end up on their knees. Abraham, when he enters into covenant with God, on his knees before Yahweh. Moses, on his knees at the burning bush, hearing Yahweh. And on through the Old Testament, every time Yahweh shows up on a place, people end up on their knees. Into the New Testament, it says this, that when the angel who had been in the presence of the glory of the Lord, and it uses the same, this time it's the Greek word for the word Yahweh, says this, that when when these angels that had been just in the presence of the Lord, in other words, it said this, the glory of the Lord shone around these angels, and when they showed up to, to be in front of Mary, Mary falls on her knees. When this angel, one, shows up to be in front of Joseph, Joseph falls on his knees. When the one angel shows up in the shepherds, And it says, the glory of the Lord shone around him. All these shepherds were afraid. Yahweh is that majesty, mighty name of God. And I asked this question the other night some people, and and I want to ask you. When you think of God, does your mind immediately run to mercy? Or does it run to holy? There's nothing wrong. There's no right or wrong answer to this. But sometimes we, we tend to run to where maybe we are at the time. And sometimes your mind runs to holy when you think of God. Sometimes it runs real fast to mercy. Mine usually runs this way. I run a lot to mercy. Yahweh is that word, there's no way you run to any other place but holy. It's the place that brings us to our knees. And when he begins this psalm, he says this, Yahweh, holy majesty, mighty God, the one who brings us to our knees. And then listen to what he says. Is my shepherd. There's no good picture in our culture of what a shepherd is. I mean, there really isn't. I've seen people like have Psalm 23 written into other occupations, like the Lord is my fireman, the Lord is my programmer. Have you ever seen those? They're kind of kind of dorky, really, when you see them. You know, if you have one by your desk, I'm sorry, I just made fun of you, but but they really just don't meet it, what a shepherd is, okay? I mean, a shepherd to sheep and their culture was something that we don't have anything akin to. Matter of fact, the only thing that I can think is even closely related to it is that, is that with that little Maddox, that was his first name, might have been his middle name, but what he is to mom, what mom is to him is the closest thing, really. Maddox being the sheep, mom being the shepherd. Because of this, the shepherd to the sheep and, the, and, and their culture was everything. The sheep did not live without a shepherd, 
They did not eat without a shepherd. They did not get healed without a shepherd. They did not survive without a shepherd. They did not do anything without a shepherd. Left alone, sheep die. Left alone, sheep get eaten. Left alone, sheep don't feed. Left alone, sheep walk over cliffs. Left alone, sheep can't do anything. The shepherd to the sheep was everything. And so there's no real good picture in our culture except maybe the nursing mom to a baby that is 100%, 24-7 dependent. And this is what he's saying. Listen to this. The Yahweh, holy majesty God, is my everything. And what makes the shepherd picture also a little bit weird for us is this. The shepherd in the Hebrew culture was the lowest on the socioeconomic class of anything you could do. If you went to college and came home and told your mom and dad, I want to be a shepherd, they would have gone, really? Because that would be like in our culture, you coming home and saying, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life being a pool boy in East St. Louis, okay? And nothing on East St. Louis, but that, that something close, probably even lower than that. Because the shepherd was the only thing you did when there was nothing else to do in their culture. David, remember where David was when the war happened and all his brothers were off fighting the Philistines? Where did they send David to tend the sheep? You know why? Because he was the youngest, and they thought, well, we'll send a little brother over there to take care of the sheep because anybody can do that. It is the lowest of lowest jobs. We'll send David. The shepherd was a nobody, a nothing. He sat out in a field alone and cold all the time. And listen to what this, listen to what God gave David to say about this. Listen, Yahweh, holy majesty, mighty God is my everything. But he's the lowest of all things. There's a little bit of a paradox there, isn't there? A little bit of this doesn't make sense. A little bit of that Sesame Street song going off in your head. One of these things is not like the other. Because holy majesty God doesn't equal shepherd. It would be like you walking up to Queen Elizabeth in England and calling her a whore. A little servant slave girl who's a whore. Number one, you'd be thrown out of the palace. But number two, you'd probably be killed on your way out. The guards, the palace guards would, would probably maul you. You wouldn't say that. If you got to meet Queen Elizabeth and you got to bow right and curtsy right, you wouldn't go, hi, your majesty, the whore. I mean, you wouldn't do that. Those words wouldn't even think about coming out of your mouth. And yet, listen, when David calls holy Yahweh God a shepherd, it had to have come out to everybody that read this as, wow, you're calling the one we can't even say his name a shepherd? You're calling the majesty of God a shepherd? Why does he do that? It's not just to say God is everything. He was also telling us about who would be our shepherd. And if you've walked in Christ for any period of time, you know this, you get this. The whole of of John chapter 10, Jesus takes Psalm 23 and blows it up for us. And we're just going to read a part of it. If you have, have a Bible, go over there to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Jesus kind of unfolds Psalm 23 as he talks about the shepherd. And he calls himself the good shepherd. There were many shepherds. There were bad shepherds. Bad shepherds didn't take care of sheep well. They died. They were just used kind of like cattle. There's a difference between cattle and sheep. Cattle you raise to do what? To slaughter, right? You're raising cattle to eat. You raise sheep to shear so you can have them for generations, and that's what you do with sheep. So you take care of them. They become personal to you. You know them intimately. Cattle, you don't name cattle unless you're a little girl in a 4-H club and she's yours for a little while and daddy hasn't told you that you're going to butcher the thing. That's the only reason you name a cow. Sheep you name. Sheep you love. Sheep you get close to you. Cattle you slaughter. And notice, aren't you glad that they didn't say the Lord is my rancher? The Lord is my shepherd. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. I'm going to start in verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and we're going to come back to that. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus tells us right here how the Lord is our shepherd. From Psalm 23, as a matter of fact, here's what's crazy interesting, is that Psalm 22 is the messianic psalm that Jesus quotes all over the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. All of Psalm 22 is littered with messianic cries about who Jesus is and what he said on the cross. A lot of messianic, in other words, Jesus being the Messiah, statements about who he is all through Psalm 22. Psalm 23, the promises of who he is as our shepherd. Psalm 22, we see Jesus foreshadowed 
800 years to 1,000 years before he comes. Psalm 23, we see who that Savior would be. And he says this, Yahweh, holy God, will come as the lowest of the lowest to be your everything. Now we get that 2,000 years later, don't we? We get that Jesus came in a manger. We get that Jesus didn't show up as king. He will come back as king, but he showed up as a king in a manger, as a shepherd, if you will. And who are the first people that get to go see the shepherd king? Do you think this is just a coinkadink that God called shepherds to go see the good shepherd? No. God in his humor sends shepherds to go see the shepherd to say, listen, the one who is Yahweh majesty, holy God, who will come as nothing, is going to be greeted first by those that will be much like him, thought of as nothing. And the question to you tonight as we begin looking at, we're going to focus in on I shall not want, but here's, here's the deal. Do you know that the Lord is your shepherd? Have you bowed your knee to holy Yahweh God who has come as Jesus the Messiah who came as nothing so that you and I could be before him completely acceptable, right? So you get to lay your bed on, head on a bed tonight probably. Most of you, some of you may sleep on a couch, but you're gonna lay on something. You're not gonna sleep on the concrete outside probably. When you lay your head on the bed tonight, here's a question for you. Will you lay your head down with all the things that are going to be going off in your mind that you're not content with, man, if I only had this, if I only had that. And will you be able to hear this echo in your head tonight because someone reminded you from God's word, listen, I'm completely acceptable before holy God. Can you lay your head on the bed tonight and be able to, even though you may not feel it, but to know this is truth, because of Jesus Christ, because of the good shepherd who laid down his life for me, the reason we put up crosses in the middle of churches is not because it's a cool decoration, but because it is the place that reminds us that our right standing before God isn't in what we say, it isn't in what we do, it is what Christ did. And can you lay your head on the bed tonight in the middle of all the things that you want and say this, God, I know that I stand and lay before you tonight completely acceptable, even though I don't feel that, I feel anything but acceptable, I feel anything but right before you, but I am because of Jesus. Will you be able to lay your head on the bed tonight because all that is begin with, will you kneel to the one who makes you right before him? Because many of us in this room will never kneel or put our knee to God and say, you are who makes me right before God. We will say this, I'm good. Not as bad as she is, and I'm definitely not as bad as he is. Or I don't care. I don't have to be right before you, God. And see, the word tells us two things. One, you do care. Because you will stay up three days later, or three months later, or three weeks later, and think, I'm not right. I've been to a lot of hospitals with people that are dying, and it's amazing how many people want to be right before God, right before they're to die. It's stunning. All of a sudden, everybody gets spiritual. And you will one day care. The word makes that clear. Matter of fact, you'll care to the point that one day your knee will bow and you will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Now, you may do it after you're dead or you may do it while you're alive. The difference is where, where your right place will come before God. Because kneeling on this side of life to Jesus says this, I believe that you're the only one that can make me right with God. And I submit to that. That's what we mean when we say trust in Christ to be our Savior to make us right. We're kneeling to that he alone can make us right. And the question is this, do you know Jesus as Lord? Has the shepherd become Lord? Have you kneeled before him? Are you kneeling before him? Because if you have and you do, then hear this promise to you, which is a truth, not based on your righteousness, but based on his. Matter of fact, go read Psalm 23, and, and I want you to find this. Find me one place in Psalm 23 where God tells you to do anything. Psalm 23 is all about what he does. Listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd. This is the result. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, listen, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's nothing in there of what we do. It's all what God does. Who he is and what he's done. And I'll ask you this again. Do you know that Yahweh, Lord God, Holy Majesty God, is your shepherd? Because if you do, listen to the promise. Listen to this. This is awesome. You shall not want. Well, what does that mean? Because you know what? I have wants all the time. I woke up this morning and I was hungry. That sounds like a want. 
Now let me distinguish here. This isn't just a play on semantics. In my house, we have this running game of want-need because we have two boys, right, that we're trying to teach stuff. And so every once in a while, one of them will say, man, I need chocolate, right? And so they, they like, I'm going to die if I don't get chocolate. I need to go swimming. Really? You need to go swimming? Wow. And so, I'm, you know, we go through the, I don't need to go swimming. I want to go swimming. Okay, yeah. So they're starting to learn the difference between need and want in our culture, right? Wants are those things you don't have to have. Needs are those things like air. Like when I'm holding him and I'm, I'm saying to my 13-year-old, tap out, tap out, right? I get him in that. I've never really done this to him, but I put my arm around him. He did it to his little brother, and I thought, oh, this is bad news. He's going to really do this to him one of these days. And that's where he learned that from. My, sorry. Um, so, I, you know, you need air, right? Got to have air? Don't have to have Xbox, right? Need water? Don't have to go to the Cardinal game. Don't need to go to the Cardinal game. We want to go to the Cardinal So we do that. So the other day I'm doing something and, and I said something stupid like, well, I need me some of that. And Will said, need or want? And I did one of these. He walked off. This isn't what's going on in Psalm 23. God's not trying to be cute with words. The Lord is my shepherd. You won't need anything, but you will have wants. It's not only saying the word want there means you're complete. Think about that. Because the Lord is your shepherd. Because holy Yahweh, majesty God, is your everything who was, came as nothing, you're complete. You lack nothing. Colossians says it this way, that you are complete in Christ. 1 Corinthians says it like this. In, verse, in chapter 3, it says that you are the temple of God and you are holy. And the word holy means other lacking nothing. And in Christ, you lack nothing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're never going to have a need? No. Matter, let, me, let me tell you two things. One of the biggest things I discovered two summers ago, I'm 46 years old. Now, it's hard to tell because I have no hair. And if you could see it grown out a little bit, it gets gray and everything. But I have great genes. I'm not talking about these, but my dad, who's, who's just bioengineered out of some laboratory somewhere, he's 79 years old and still doesn't look that old. He finally started looking old to me about two or three years ago. When he was 60, he looked like he was 40, and I just used to think, grow up. You know, I used to, like, now I'm excited that he looks the way he does because I got some of those genes. But listen, I'm 46 years old, and two years ago during the summer, I had one of those things that people call um, moments of crisis. And it wasn't midlife crisis at all, I don't think. That happened much earlier. But this this was one of those moments where John the Baptist is sitting in the jail, and he sends the note off to Jesus. And he said, are, are you really the Messiah, or did we miss it? Have I been spending my whole life telling people that you were the Messiah, and I picked the wrong person? And can you imagine that? God had been a preacher his whole life, and at the end of it, he knows he's about to get his head cut off, and he went, uh-oh. Jesus, I really need to know if you're the man, because if I mess this up, this is going to be bad news. I'm going to have wasted my whole life rubber meets the road kind of moment. I had one of those two summers ago. Lots of, I never knew what depression was. Not that I was always happy. I just never knew depression. Depression just rained down on my life. And for a couple of months, maybe three, four, five, six, massively depressed. I mean, bottom of the barrel, not wanting suicide, but just not wanting to do anything. I'd never been there before. And it's much like a back injury. If you've ever hurt your back, people that haven't hurt their back, you just make fun of them, right? People that say, oh, my back hurts. You're like, whatever, wimp. People that get depressed, and they, and they come to work, and they're like, oh, I'm struggling with depression. You're like, get over it. You know, and you want to tell that to your parents, those of you who are younger, and your mom, you see your mom depressed, and you're like, would you just get over it? And, you're, and we're all like that until you're there, and you can't think, and, and I, I was there. And you know what? The, one of the biggest things God revealed to me during that whole summer that I went through this was this. I had no place in my life, and this is one of the things that, that I think had weighed me down to the place where I was. I had no place in my life for mistakes. I was a follower of Christ. I've been a follower of Christ, pastor, leading other people to follow Christ for 20-something years. I've been, been a follower of Christ for 25, maybe 28 years in the middle of that, longer than that, maybe 30 years. I've been in the ministry for maybe 20. Really, God changing my heart. Phenomenal things happening in the middle of my life, but I had no place for mistakes. In other words, this. I had no, I did not know what to do with when I did something that I thought was the right thing to do and it turned out to be horrible. Now, some mistakes are like this. If you're married, you come home, you've done everything right to plan a night with your wife, right? You've got candles or something, you know, and you've brought stuff home and, and you're going to do it right and all of a sudden you've forgotten something that's going on and you come home and everything that you plan turns into this real just crash and burn. 
and then you end up in an argument, and you're thinking, man, I planned this whole night, I did everything right, and it failed, and you, and you made a mistake. You didn't do anything on purpose. Matter of fact, the whole night was to serve, and it ended up just horrible. Now, that's a mistake, right, that sometimes you can go, eh. But what about those of you that hire people, and you've hired that person that you thought was just the right person to hire, and they turned it out to be like Saddam Hussein? And you didn't know that when you hired them? We've, you know, if you've hired anybody in your life, you've made that mistake. You let your kid go spend the night at somebody's house, and it was the first time, and they came home telling you about that movie they watched. Those of you that had that happen to you, you know, the first time you saw porn was you spent the night at somebody's house, an older brother, and now you're getting a little bit older, and you're thinking, oh, my God, I'm not letting, if I ever have kids, I'm not letting them go anywhere. I'm going to lock them in a closet, and I'm going to feed them through the slot on the door. Mistakes happen, not sin. We're just talking mistakes. You know why I had no place for mistakes? I could take my sin to the cross, but I couldn't take my mistakes to the cross. You know why? Because something deep inside me believed I needed to be perfect all the time. If you have no working theology for mistakes, what you're saying is this, that you should be perfect. What you're saying is this, you're not human. What you're saying is this, you think you're God. Because the sooner you realize that you're going to make mistakes, not sin, we're all going to sin, but I'm just talking about make mistakes. The sooner you realize that is one of these human enlightened moments in your life when you realize, wow, I'm not God. I'm a human being, and I have needs. I'm not all-knowing. I don't know who's going to walk through that door. I'm a waiter. I open the door and smack somebody. The reason I smack them walking through the door, I'm not all-knowing. I can't see through the door. I don't know who's on the other side of the door. That's a mistake. I knock the person down. We all, oh, we pick up broken dishes. A mistake. But because I think I shouldn't make mistakes, you know what I'm saying? I should know everything. I should know that guy was going to turn to be evil, and I shouldn't have hired him. And it would ruin me, and it would crush me in. And I think over a long course of time, I never realized that I had needs, that I was human, that one of the basic things about you being human is this. God created you with physical needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. Why? Why did God create you to be hungry? That's a need. Why did God create you to be this deep desire in you to be loved? There's not a person in this room that thinks, well, I hate everybody. I don't want anybody to ever love me. You have this deep emotional need to be loved. Why? Why did God create you that way? Because you know what most of you think? That is a burden and a pain I'd rather deal with, not deal with. And yet some of you have just pushed it to the side and said, man, I'm going to be single forever. I'm going to be like Paul or Pauline or whoever the girl form of that is, you know? Because we just think, man, that's a burden. That just hurts, man. I've liked people before and it hurts. But you know what? You're never going to be able to run from that. Even with friends, even if you never get married and you just have friends, you're going to want those friends to love you. Because there's this deep emotional need God created in you to be loved. Why did he create us that way? There's a deep spiritual need in you to be God's worshiper. Why did God create you that way? Here's, here's just simple thing I can tell you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, does not mean you will not have needs. You will have a ton of needs. Those needs remind you of two things. Number one, that you are human, that you are not God, that you need God, that you need food, and when you eat it, it'll make you thankful. Thank you, God, for providing this food, and not make you unthankful and say things like, I don't want to eat this tonight, because most of you are going to walk out of here tonight if you haven't eaten, and you're going to be thinking this, where am I going to eat, not if I'm going to eat. And you're going to think, oh, I really don't want to go there. Let's go there. Or you're going to go get dessert because you haven't had enough calories today. So you're going to go get dessert and drink some more coffee because you haven't had enough caffeine today. And you're going to go do something like that. And you're going to get to choose between a lot and gluttony. That's our choices in America, right? That's our choices in food. Is Am I going to eat way too much or am I going to eat more than I can bear to eat? But when you really get hungry, you know what? That's part of the reason you created that way is so that you and I will remember, and I'm not God and everything that I stick in my mouth comes from him. But there's a second reason I think God created us with needs, and that's this. It's so that you and I will live from an abundant life. Because Jesus said this in John 10, I've come that they may have life and have an abundant. And part of our needs is a reminder of how much God has given us. And some of you look around and you think, man, think about this. How many friends do you have that love you? And ask yourself this, has God given you abundance of love in your life? 
Those of you that have families that actually care about you, do you realize this, that God has blessed you with a family that actually loves you? And there are tons of students and adults and grandparents and grandchildren all around you that would die to have your family. And there's a reason they come over to your house all the time. And there's a reason they want to be around you as parents all the time. I used to wonder why all the kids in the neighborhood wanted to come to my house. I used to think I was cool. That's why they want to come to my house. You know what I figured out later? My dad was cool. My dad loved those kids in my neighborhood who didn't have dads or didn't have parents that loved them. And they showed up at my house because they wanted to be around my dad. I was really depressed as a 17-year-old. I was like, man, I thought they liked me. Figured out they all liked my dad. Some of you have parents like that or grandparents like that or, or you're the whatever. Listen, God has blessed you with an abundance. And one of the reasons we have that need is for us to realize that, man, I live in abundance of what God has given me. And I'm reminded of that every day that I start to think, man, God, I don't feel loved today. And then God reminds you, yeah, you're loved. Remember your aunt? She loves you a lot. Remember your grandmother? She loves you a lot. Remember that friend? He loves you a lot. Remember that grandchild? He loves you a lot. We live out of abundance. So we will live out of abundance. So what does it mean I shall not want? You're going to have needs. But what does it mean that you're complete? And I'll ask you this question. Do you feel complete? Do you trust that you're complete in Christ? It means this. I stated at the very beginning of this that I struggle with contentment in all the things that I do. You know one of the things that God showed me two weeks ago? I was in Colorado with my wife, and I was in Vail, a place that Mark would have been if he wouldn't have been having a baby. We go to Acts 29, guys that are part of this church planning network. Every year we go to this retreat in Vail in Colorado. It's a wonderful thing. Make sure he goes next year. He's had an excuse the last three years he hasn't gone. Okay, so those of you guys that are in charge of that kind of stuff, kick he and his wife out of here during that and make sure he goes. It's basically free. He didn't have to do anything to get there, and it's a wonderful thing for he and his wife. So you can tell him I said that. We were in Colorado. I was up at the top of a hill on a mountain bike with another guy who's a really good mountain bike rider. I'm average at best. And I was thinking, I'm going to die because we had just pedaled all the way to the top. I couldn't breathe after the first 10 minutes. We climbed 1,000 vertical feet in two hours. It's a long ways up in the mountains. We were way up anyway, altitude-wise. We finally get to the top, and I, I mean, the first 10 minutes, I'm like that. Okay, we had another hour and 50 minutes. Of that. We finally got to the top, and he's like, man, this is the best part. Let's go. And so we take off down, and literally we got down that 1,000 vertical feet in 20 minutes. And the only reason it took us 20 minutes because I was on the brakes all the way down and leaning off the back end of the seat like this through the rocks and the trees and all this kind of stuff. While I'm going down this hill, I'm not lying to you, I didn't have this voice in my head, God said, John, I need to speak to you now, because I would have ignored it. I was about to die. But I had this thought, and it sounded just like me. It didn't sound like God, and it said this. This is what I was thinking as I was riding down the hill. I wish I would have spent a lot more time getting in shape before I came up here, because I run all the time. I do that, and I think, man, I didn't run as much before I came up here. I would be having so much more fun right now. Listen to what it was, discontentment. I wasn't looking at where I was thinking, this is gorgeous. I wasn't doing what I was doing thinking, thank you for the ability to just thrill myself to death doing this. Thank you for the rocks you created, the bike you gave me. Thank you that this guy paid for it. I didn't even have to pay for this bike. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for, buying, for renting this bike for me. It was all a blast. It was all free. It was all good. And you know what I was thinking going down the hill? I'm going to kill myself because I'm not in good enough shape. And I got to the bottom of that hill, and this is what spun through my head as I was having a conversation with Daniel that I told my wife later. Do you seek to find contentment in the things that you're going to do that you think a lot about? Or will you finally realize someday, John, that all your contentment needs to be found in the shepherd and the shepherd alone? And with God, for the first time in my life, I heard this go off in my head. I may not want you to be content with those things. I may want 5,000 people in your church. I may want another 30 men to be saved. I may want your children to be a little more disciplined. I may want your marriage to be a whole lot better. It's okay to be discontent with some things if that's what you feel like I'm calling you to be. But listen, even if you're discontent or content there, listen, I've never called you to find your contentment in your marriage or your kids or your bike riding ability or the size of your church. I've asked you to find your contentment in one place, in me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not and you know what I've spent the great majority of my life doing? Trying to say this. The Lord is my shepherd. If I'm in good enough shape, I have no wants. 
The Lord is my shepherd. If God's moving in our church, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. And what my gospel has been is this. Jesus plus something else equals I'm complete. You live there? Do you live there? Do you live at a place where you know that the Lord is your shepherd, but there has to be something else? It's the Lord is my shepherd plus equals I shall not want. And I want to say this to you. Listen, anything that you add with a plus sign after the Lord is your shepherd is an idol. It's an idol because it's being put in the same breath, in the same sentence, as holy, majestic Yahweh God. I want to ask you this question tonight. What goes in that sentence for you? The Lord is my shepherd plus this will equal I am complete. What does it mean to be complete? What does it mean, that word there? It means this, that you lack nothing. That means in and of who Christ is in you, that in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in you means this, you lack nothing, that you are fully complete. Let's get real practical. Men, the reason you lust. You know what lust is? Lust is wanting something you can't have. The reason you lust, men, is because you believe you lack something, and I need that. And it can be another relationship. It can just be a physical thing like money. It can be a job. It can be a person. And the reason we lust, men, is because we believe we're not complete in Christ. I must have that. And if I had that, I submit life couldn't get any better. That's what you think in that moment anyway. And the reason you lust is because you don't believe you're complete. Women, you know why you envy? I'm not picking on just, I know women lust too. I know men envy too, but I'm just separate here for a second. You know what envy is? Envy is wanting something that's not yours. Lust is wanting something you can't have. Envy is wanting something that's not yours. The difference between envy and jealousy, a little side comment here for a second, is that God has showed us that jealousy isn't all bad because God's a jealous God. Jealousy is this, is wanting that which is yours. Now, when you and I get jealous, we get all crazy. We go cops, right? We like pull out guns and do really crazy, stupid things. When God gets jealous, he just goes after that which is his and says, you're mine. I'm not going to let anything get to you. I'm jealous for you. That's why he says I'm a jealous God. If God was to say he was an envious God, that would be sin, and God can't do that because envy is wanting that which is not yours. So, ladies, why do you envy? Because something inside of you says this, I must have that. It's what she has. And if I had her husband, our family would be, Roop. if I had her dad, my life would be, Roop. If I had her car, if I had her brains, if I had her gifts, if I had her beauty, if I had his, we envy because we do not believe we're complete in Christ. And the rest of your life, you and I are going to struggle with this truth. If Christ is in us because of the cross and we've bowed our knee, holy Yahweh God, through the covenant of Jesus Christ, has come to become our right standing before God, you will struggle with this truth. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is enough. He's all I need. He's my everything. Came as nothing, became my everything. And you will constantly hear this in your head. If I had that, then I would be without want. C.S. Lewis made a statement in in a book I was reading the other day. He's an old Christian writer from England, the guy who wrote the Narnia Chronicles. And he says this, He's writing in the Psalms as he was reading through the Psalms, and he said this about Psalm 23. He said, we have all we want. We, and then he put it in quotations, we have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. Listen to that again. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. Tonight, we're gonna, we're in just a minute, we're going to get a chance to pray, maybe confess, maybe repent. Maybe nothing. Probably we will all need to confess and repent. Confession just means this, that you agree with God that what he deems is right is right. And that what he deems is wrong is wrong. Confession is just not about sin. It's also about righteousness. Sometimes we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Remember that verse? That's right. Sometimes we confess with our mouth, I've made my job my Lord. So it's about both. So tonight, we're probably all going to need to confess some right things, that my right standing is in God alone, but also I've made this my Lord. And then we probably need to spend some time repenting. And repenting just means this. It's a military term that means you're heading this direction, and you take a 180 and go this way, an about face. 
because you realize that if you keep worshiping that thing as an idol, that it's going to lead you to a place, A, of destruction, but B, it's leading you real far away from the pleasure and the beauty and the wonder of knowing what it is to be complete in Christ. Repentance isn't just about fear of walking off the side of a cliff. Repentance is about running to the arms of your Savior who is there waiting because of justice to wrap you in, because of the justice carried out on the cross to bring you in and say, you're my sheep, I'm your shepherd, come in. Repentance isn't just running from the fear that I'm going to destroy my life. Repentance is running to holy God. It's what the prodigal son did when he realized, man, I've sinned, and he didn't run home because he was afraid. Because you know why he didn't run home at the beginning? Because he was afraid. He ran home at the end because he realized this, my father will at least take me in as a slave. So I pray that some of you run home tonight, not because you're afraid you're going to run off a cliff, but you run home because your heavenly father has been running after you. And maybe you've made so many other things your shepherd besides the Lord. Run home. There's a new hungry baby sitting at the sick of my house tonight. And I know this about that baby. But if Mark and his wife leave that baby alone for 48 hours, it's not going to be alive. And we won't be in this room celebrating a new life. We'll be doing a funeral. You know, if they just decide, let's go get something to eat tomorrow, and they drive off in their car with their other kids and leave Maddox at home, they're going to come home very sad. And you'd think, well, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. They're not going to do that. Aren't you glad that they're mostly good parents? Now, Now put this good parent picture on your father who is the good shepherd and ask yourself this. Is he ever going to drive off and leave you at home for an hour? Is he ever going to lock you in a car when it's 100 degrees outside and forget? Because he's not really a good shepherd or a good parent. Is he ever going to leave you out to pasture and let you wander off the side of a cliff? Because you may think, man, my life is just messed up right now. Where did God go? Listen, the good shepherd doesn't leave you. We're dumb sheep. And we do dumb things, but the good shepherd doesn't leave. There's an infant baby that is 100% totally dependent on that mom. And listen, you and I are 100% totally dependent on our good shepherd, completely. We can get needs met, we can find food, and we think it's without God, but the reality is this, the reason you're going to eat the rest of this week is because of God. Because he's going to make the sun come up tomorrow that's going to grow some wheat in Nebraska that's going to end up on your table as bread, and you're not going to even think about thanking God for it, but he made all that happen. And besides the fact that he gave you the job you got that you probably shouldn't have got because you walk in there and you lied in your interview, remember that? Some of you? Or because you should have been fired six years ago for the thing you did but you didn't get fired for? Or you should have got kicked out of that school for cheating that time you didn't cheat? Or you took your ACT test off that senior who was a little bit smarter than you? God's grace is bigger and greater and wonderful than we can ever imagine. The reason you eat, the reason you have love, the reason you have life, the reason you have air is because of him. But more than that, listen, the reason tonight that you're going to be able to run back to him and away from those other idols is because God has been pursuing you. And listen, listen to him again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me makes me lie down in green pastures. For a sheep, a place of rest, also a place of food. And he says this, he leads me besides quiet waters. Sheep don't drink out of running rivers. They're scared of running rivers because they got a lot of wool on them. They fall in, they drown. They don't like water. Like cats, they stay away from water. So still waters they drink from, but it's also a place of rest. And then listen to this, he restores my soul. You know, John Piper said this, guys that are going to lead us in worship tonight, come on up and we're going we're to end with this and we're going to pray together. John Piper said this about a stream. He said, if God is the stream of life for you and I, if God is the place like a stream, if you were dying of thirst up in the mountains like I was when I was riding my bike and you found a stream like my wife and I did and you went up to that stream and you bent down and you drank from that stream and the stream completely satisfied your thirst, quenched your thirst, what would you do to honor that stream? You wouldn't go down to your house, get a bucket of water 
out of the faucet and bring it back to the fountain and pour it into the stream to say thank you. You would honor the stream by getting on your knees and drinking some more. You would honor the stream by going and getting your friends and saying, come drink from this. This is awesome. This will satisfy your thirst. You don't honor the stream by drinking from it once and walking off and then making statements like this. I'm still thirsty. You know the reason you're thirsty? You stop drinking. The Lord is your shepherd. You have no wants, but that doesn't mean we drink from him one time and disappear from him and wander off going, why am I so lonely? Why do I miss love? Why do I feel so incomplete? Keep drinking from the stream. You honor the stream by drinking from the stream. You honor the stream by bringing others to the stream. You honor the stream by bowing on your knees before the stream and satisfying yourself completely in the stream. The Lord is your shepherd, I shall not want. What are you finding your satisfaction in tonight? Where are you running to that you will say, the Lord is my shepherd plus this? As we pray, as we worship here, I'm gonna ask you confession. What do you need to confess tonight? I pray there's some right things that God puts in your head, that he is your righteousness, that he is your shepherd, that he is Yahweh, he is holy, mighty, awesome God, that he came as nothing, shepherd, but has become your everything. You need to confess those things. But then also you may need to confess this, Jesus, I put the Lord as my shepherd plus. Whatever that is for you, job, family, whatever, confess that up and say, I've I've said if this plus this, man, I will have no wants. And then I'm going to tell you in the middle of this night that repentance is the hard place to go. Because repentance means asking God, help me run away from that idol back to you. God, destroy that idol. Can you say that? God, take that away from me. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus right now. Again, not because we get, because we use your name. God, we don't pray for righteousness, we pray from righteousness. We don't pray because we, we believe that if we pray right, or we pray with the right amount of tears, or we pray with the right amount of passion, that you will do for us. But God, we pray because you tell us that we are right before you in Christ, and that we can come boldly before your throne for times of mercy and grace that we will receive there. And so God, we come as, as children desperate. And we confess before you that you are right and you are holy and you are God. And that you have saved us and made us right before you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Jesus, that we are right because of Jesus, because of you. Confess that to him tonight and then spend some time confessing up sin, what you put in the place or added to the Lord is my shepherd. And I pray that you'd spend some time asking, God, take this away. Help me run to you. Father, hear our prayers now in our worship.